So, so the Lord is good. Anyway, so we're going to Second Peter today. Second Peter, we're finishing this book. In Second Peter, he talks about the issue of false teachers and. The false teachers, he said, are those who come in among you and they secretly introduce destructive heresies built around a sensual libertine worldview. And these false teachers, he says, will speak in such a way and be so persuasive that even some of the believers in Jesus will follow their way and they will blaspheme the noble name of the one who bought their name on the cross. And so these false teachers also, he says in chapter 3, will take the scriptures, the teachings of Paul, and twist them to say what they were never meant to say. For example, in chapter 3, he says, verse 14 and following, there are some things in them, in Paul's writings, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, anoint this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stability. So what they did, they, take, they said, well, the Apostle Paul says you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. You cannot add anything to your salvation. Therefore, live with abandon in a libertine, sensual way. And the Bible doesn't teach that. Paul says a pox on that house. He says you're purchased by the grace of the cross to live a life unto the Lord, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Peter says you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this salvation doesn't lead to loose living, it leads to joyous obedience because we've received the Holy Spirit and we want to be pleasing unto him. So that's what they did. And he says that they have eyes full of adultery and they're never satisfied. They have insatiable desires. And so you back up and say, well, what, what do we do? What do we do in light of this? And the Bible answers it. He says, but you, verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I said last week that grow in the grace and the knowledge, that grace means to grow into the likeness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. He takes our unique background, our socioeconomic development, our education, our zip code, our ethnicity, and he uses the uniqueness of who we are, and he knocks off the rough edges, and he reproduces the life of Christ in us, a life that is a life that's filled with the Holy Spirit as we keep in step with the Spirit. So you go in the, grow in the grace and in the knowledge. You think biblically. You think with an engaged mind and an engaged heart. And then he adds this little phrase, the very last phrase of the book. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, now the issue here is this. Does this little phrase, to him be the glory both now and forevermore, amen, is that just kind of a yours truly, sincerely yours, have a good day, the Apostle Peter, or I'm going to suggest that represents the heartbeat of Peter. That represents his motivation in life, that the living God in his triune glory would get the glory, the worship, the adoration. You see, to walk in a way that is 
honoring unto the Lord, for God to get the glory, my formula, is that you so appreciate and delight and glory in the goodness of Christ that it leads to a life of worship which leads to yieldedness. Everything you are is yielded to the Lordship of Christ because you see his greatness, you see his goodness, you see his mercy, you appreciate, you delight in all he is that leads to worship which leads to yieldedness. You see, there's a problem here that the church and that Peter is addressing is engulfed by a, uh, a culture of sensuality that worshiped at the altar of personal autonomy where the individual decided for himself or herself what is best. There's no yieldedness to any God you call the shots. In fact, in the book of 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter makes this statement re- regarding the church. He says, listen, Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised, non-believers, the culture, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery or libertine living or sensual living, and they malign you or they make fun of you or they belittle you. They're just surprised. They're surprised that you don't enter into their lifestyle. And the question is, how do you combat that, church? How do you combat a culture that worships at the altar of anonymity where they call the shots and it's all about them? And in this particular instance, it was all about a sexual libertinism that was unbridled. Well, here's how you don't combat it, in my opinion. You don't combat it by trying harder and doubling down. You primarily combat it as we studied in the book of 2 Peter, by glorying in the greatness and the goodness and the mercy of Jesus. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, just a few things, he says, he says, you have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You received a faith that's of equal standing with the apostles. He says, and as you understand that and glory in that, verse 2, grace and peace are multiplied in your life. So you thank God for the grace and peace that's multiplied and poured into your life because of the glory of the cross. And then as you do that, verse 3, you rejoice in his divine power that has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And particularly, this divine power has caused us to have the promises of God in such a fashion that we internalize them and we're conformed to the likeness of Christ. And we have these divine promises, and these divine promises are given us, and as we think about them and walk through them, we escape the cancer or the corruption of a fallen world by the power of the living God. And he's called us unto himself for his own glory and his goodness. And he says in verse 8, if you do the things that I've commanded you to do, then you'll live productive and fruitful and happy lives. that, That motivates me. Not just try harder, but glory in the goodness of Christ and have a delight and an appreciative embrace of Christ that leads to worship, which leads to being yielded to him. And I think that's the way you fight it. He says twice this book, I'm going to stir you up to wholesome living and thinking. I want you to have a future and a hope. So I'm, I'm stirring you up. So we have this appreciation, which leads to delight, which leads to glad-hearted worship and a yieldedness unto the Lord. There's an old Puritan named Thomas Watson who wrote a book on how to glorify God. And he says this, to glorify God is to have God-admiring thoughts, to esteem him most excellent, and to search for diamonds in this rock only. He says, if you're going to glorify God, you search for diamonds in the reality of Christ. 
you, you, you glory in who he is and what he's done for you. And you are glad in him. And this appreciative delight overflows into worship, which leads to a, a personal yieldedness unto the Lord. Jonathan Edwards died in 1758. One of my heroes said this. This is so good. This is so good. He said, because God is infinitely beautiful. Do you ever stop and say, God, as I see creation, and as I see the beauty of life around me, I want to say, even in a fallen world, you are infinitely beautiful in your triune glory. Wow. Because God is infinitely beautiful and excellent. And all the beauty to be found throughout the whole of creation is but the reflection of the diffused beams of the infinitely brighter and more glorious God. Edwards is saying that every meal you take, this delicious and every sunrise and sunset and every embrace of a child and every cool breeze that hits your face that makes you rejoice and every time you laugh with a sense of joy, that is, that, that, those, those are the, the diffused beams that flow from the source that is the power of God. And so we appreciate and we delight. And as we do that, we worship and we yield ourselves. And we combat that by saying, God wants the, 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 the universal, the human flourishing in my heart. God wants me to have joy and peace and hope and purpose. And he shows that in the cross. So one way you understand what the glorification of God is, is you think about what it is not. In Matthew 23, Christ takes on the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a late-to-the-party group of people, a group of Jews who wanted to reform Judaism by observing the intricacies of the law, and they put around the law all types of man-made traditions and codes and so forth and so on. And, and, and so they went around making everybody realize that they were the in crowd. And so Matthew 23, Jesus breathes out seven woes against the Pharisees, but he starts off by putting his finger on the problem of the Pharisee. It's verse 5 of Matthew 23. The Pharisees do all their deeds to be seen by others. You see, uh, somebody who glorifies in God and wants God to get the glory says, God, I play to an audience of one. I want to honor you with my life. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, some people pray to be seen by others. You don't pray that way. You, you pray to get in touch with your heavenly father. Some people fast so that people say, ooh, he's fasting. He's in a bad mood. Stay away from him. No, you fast. You don't let people know what you're, what you're doing because you're seeking your father. You give and you give, but, but, but you don't give to be seen of others. You don't drop it in one coin at a time. You give in such a fashion that God sees and God is honored. And so if I'm going to glorify God, I say, I play to an audience of one, I glory in him, and I am filled with appreciative delight that leads me to glad-hearted worship, which causes me to yield myself to the Lord. So how do you combat false teaching that comes to you in waves? You glory in the goodness of God. You say, may God, may you get the glory. You contest it. You contest the, the, the culture by, by rejoicing the goodness of God. Now, again... The church faced a group of people that worshiped at the altar of personal autonomy. And part of their personal autonomy was sexual liberation. Now, I, try to, I try to keep it PG-13, but sometimes in this passage, you can't get away from going a little bit further down the path. So on June the 27th, as we began our vacation, the Supreme Court made a ruling that broke my heart. Uh, 
The Supreme Court, Supreme Court voted five to three to overturn a statue in Texas that asked or mandated that abortion clinics have a health standard that are equal to other clinics. It caused many abortion clinics to close in Texas, which was a very good thing. But the Supreme Court overturned that, and in the aftermath, what's, what's amazing to me is in the aftermath of that, they showed pictures of, of hundreds of people on the Supreme Court steps embracing and dancing and laughing. Uh, we're embracing and dancing and laughing the systematic destruction of life in the womb. I mean, God. and CNN Time released a survey that said that 30% of Americans believe that abortion should be at any time during the growth of the baby in the womb for any reason whatsoever. Years ago, President Clinton talked about abortion being safe, legal, and rare. It was a cottony, vapid phrase. They want to be safe and legal, but never rare. There were things said and done in the aftermath of this that broke my heart. Uh, one woman said, told the Huffington Post, I was so overjoyed. I had tears of joy welling in my eyes for the women of Texas and for reproductive freedom in this country, close quote. Another woman said, I was on vacation in Florida, but I immediately ran out of my condo and went running down the beach, screaming out to others, the Supreme Court has overturned the Texas law. Enjoy. I thought that'd be pretty weird to be sitting on the beach in Texas reading a novel and somebody comes running down the beach saying that. But, but see, the, the, the bottom line is these people, and God bless them, worship at the altar of sexual autonomy. Nobody can ever tell us how to define the family, how to define marriage, and nobody can tell us that life is sacred. It's our choice. That is what Peter was combating. That, that's, that's the same thing Peter was combating. And we need to love people, but still our minds with the greatness of Christ. A few weeks before this, I read an article by a woman who teaches philosophy at a Midwest university, and she's been doing it for 30 years, she says. And she also counsels women on the side, and she said that um, in this current milieu where so many students worship at the altar of personal autonomy, and she called it the hookup culture, that a young woman came to see her, and she was devastated because she'd just been to her physician, and her physician said to her, because of your sexually transmitted disease, there is a strong probability that you will have a difficult time ever having children and you may never have children. And she was devastated. She was 19 years old. And she said, she wept in my office and she said, she said, the horrid thing in my mind is that I am not promiscuous, which means loose. I've only slept with six men. And she said, that's, she says, I thought, Wow. So promiscuity has been pushed back in her mind. The next month, she said, I had an 18-year-old freshman come to see me. And this 18-year-old freshman said that I've just went to a center for health on the campus and went there with bronchitis. And as the physician examined me and talked about my health history, I told him that I was a virgin. And he stopped and he said, do you want me to refer you to a campus counselor to talk about that? In other words, something's wrong with you. 
And she, the young lady said to this professor, God bless this professor. Do you think something's wrong with me? She says, no, I think you're in God's game plan. Go forward and remain a virgin until you get married. But see, that, that, that's the culture we live in. And, and that's what Peter combated. And listen, that's what the younger guys, you're combating too, more and more. Now, let me give you an example. I have two adult grown children and they're wonderful. Uh, they're discerning and oftentimes they're very honest with me. But they would never describe me as being trendy or avant-garde or hip or cool. They just wouldn't. Dad, you're not. You're, you're just not. Yeah, I'm not. I know that. Uh, I accept that. That's just who I am. I did have an 85-year-old after the first service come to me and said, Pastor Brown, I think you're cool. I said, thanks. <laughs> thanks. I appreciate it, man. You know, but anyway, um, so, so I, I say that as, as, as a background, but um, I do tell people that I've heard things that many people will never hear as a pastor. Francis Schaeffer, one of my heroes who died in 1983, a wonderful man, said, late in his ministry, I will never use this phrase, I am shocked. He said, because people do crazy things. But I had an experience recently where I was just shocked. And it helps me, again, ultra autonomy, ultra yieldedness, two different altars. Christ followers, ultra yieldedness. You delight in the goodness of God and, and, and you want to worship him and so you yield yourself to him and you yield yourself to the word uh, autonomy. I, I was at a, a wedding recently. I'll cloak this in anonymity. Wonderful couple, godly couple. Love them dearly. Dear, dear people. Went to the reception at a very, very nice place. Very nice place. Very nice reception. And I'm standing there and some young people come in. I mean, really beautiful young ladies in their early 20s, late teens, beautiful girls. Um, I mean, uh, talented, I'm sure. But I gotta be honest with you, I was shocked over how they dressed. I mean, I, I, I don't live, I live in cold. So I'm, I'm, that's, I'm good grief. And so I pulled aside our youth pastors there and I said, what's going on? He said, that's the way a lot, of, a lot of them dressed today. I went, good grief. And so I pulled, off, pulled aside a, 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 a young couple that I deeply respect. And I won't tell you their name, but I asked Travis and Allison. I said, I said is, is this? He said, yeah, that's the way some of these. And I'm, I'm just sitting there, and my heart is breaking. And, and just an aside, I wanted, I mean, I'm talking about real low and real high. I'm talking about, real, I mean, we're talking, I'm talking about, I'm, I'm not approved. I'm, just, I'm, I'm sitting there going, and see, one part of me, one day I walk up to them, I did not, and say, do you have a daddy? And did you come from your home? And if they said yes, I would say, please give me your address. And I would get a big burly guy, and I would go to visit him and say, did you see what your daughter was wearing when she left? Oh, yeah, man. I said, can I hit you right now? You see, at the, the heart of masculinity, men, is the desire to protect, provide for, nourish, and care for those under our charge. Be a man. Be a man. Be a pace setter. Anyway, 
But the other thing that broke my heart is I'm older, and I I can see where these 21, 22-year-old beautiful young girls are going in 15 and 30 and 40 years, and it's not good. It's called divorce. It's called single-parent families. It's called trying to look like you're 28 when you're 58. It's called depression. It's called suicide because you worship at the altar of the autonomous self and it operates on the law of diminishing returns. But, hear this, there was some other people there. And I started talking to this old man, older man, who's going to have a significant birthday on November the 7th. That's my birthday. And he said to me, preacher, you you tell from the country, they call you preacher. He said, preacher, you know who else is born November the 7th? I said, yes, sir, Billy Graham. He said, you and me and Billy, November the 7th. And we started talking, and he said, you know, I've only got one child. The Lord only gave us one child, but she is wonderful. And he said, she's wonderful in large part because of the Lord, but because she had the best mama anybody could have, my wife. He said, you know, she died six years ago of pancreatic cancer, and I miss her. And he said, she's the best woman I ever met. And when somebody says that, there's no response. It's the time to worship. (laughs) So I said, thank you, and I kind of hugged him and walked away. And as I did so, he he grabbed my arm, kind of, and he said, preacher, I know you hear things like that all the time, but I mean it. (laughs) I thought, here's a man who worshiped the altar of the living God. And he has a future and a hope, and he has no regrets, and he has joy, and he has purpose, and he can barely walk, but heaven awaits. He wins. He wins. And so I want us to be at this altar church. I want us to appreciate delight and glory in the goodness of God, which leads to incredible worship, which leads to a yieldedness to his purposes in our lives. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So the, the, the next issue is, is why, why, why do we glorify in God? Well, there are a hundred reasons that we take gladness and delight and appreciation we worship and we yield ourselves. But, but let me give you just one reason. One reason that we glory in God is he's worthy of it. But another reason is that when God gets the glory and the worship, I get the blessing because he wants human flourishing. When God is supreme, I have purpose. When God is exalted, I have delight. When God is God and worships God, I get happiness. They're intertwined. John Calvin was writing the commentary on the, on the Lord's Prayer, and this is what he says regarding our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This is what Calvin says. It is of unspeakable advantage to us that God reigns and that he receives the honor which is due to him. It's of unspeakable advantage. I said, amen. So, so we want God to get the glory because When God gets the glory, we get purpose and joy and fulfillment, and we have a roadmap to walk on. That's why. Because the path of the righteous, Proverbs 4, is like the light of dawn that grows brighter and brighter until the full day, but the way of darkness 
but the way the wicked is like deep darkness, they do not know over what they stumble. So draw in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We glorify him. That last very quickly. How do we glorify God? Well, first of all, we glorify God as I've observed people and read the Bible by crying out every day, getting up and say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God, you get the glory. I want to be involved in self-forgetfulness, but God worship. Trinitarian splendor. An old commentary says regarding let your light so shine, if you ever want to hide, you need to shine, and when you want to shine, you need to hide. Let God get the glory. The second thing we do is we glorify God when we believe the promises of God even in the dark, even when it's hard. And when I was thinking about this and saying this, when I was thinking about the, the life of Abraham, Abraham and his wife Sarah desperately wanted a child, and God hadn't given them one. And they were approaching 100, and she was approaching 90. And so God, through a theophany, a earthly representation of his character, visited them in the book of Genesis. And he says, get ready, Abraham. Next year, you will hold a child that comes from your union with your wife, Sarah. And Sarah laughed. You know the story. She laughed. That's what the Bible says. In Romans 4, Paul's talking about trusting God. He says, in hope, verse 18, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As it had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not grow weak in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. <laughs> Since he was 100 years old. I mean, he really, he said, I'm dead. I mean... I'm 100. My wife's 90. It's been decades since she could have a baby. And I'm almost dead. And on top of that, you have a baby. You mentioned the output of energy trying to raise a newborn when you're 100 years old. Good grief. I mean, then it says this. No distrust made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He gave glory to God. He worshiped God. He said, God, I don't fully understand this. I'm old. My wife is old. But I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. And it happened. Now, I don't know where you are in your worship yieldedness to God. And some people here are in a very, very difficult place, maybe in their marriage, maybe in their parenting, maybe you're a child and your parents are just hard. The Bible still says, honor your father and your mother. You still care for them, pray for them. The Bible says that we should all pray for our enemies. We should pray for our enemies. And see, you, you, what you do is you do what God has called you to do even when you're in the dark. Even when it seems tough, 
You're despondent, you're depressed. The Bible says, rejoice in the Lord. You say, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm kind of down right now. I'm emotionally beat up. I'm tired, but I, I'm going to praise you. So I, I'm going to thank you for your goodness. I'm going to thank you for the cross work of Jesus. I'm going to thank you that you're Abba Father and nothing happens to me apart from your goodness. I'm going to thank you that you've given me the Holy Spirit. I'm going to thank you that when I die, I go to heaven. I'm going to thank you that you watch over my life in such a way that I can trust you. I, I, th I thank you. So you do that. So if you're going to glorify God, brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to myself, you trust him in the dark. The third way you glorify God is you bear fruit. Jesus says, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit. If you want to glorify God, you say, produce the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Make me full of love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and self-control. Do that in my life. And two weeks ago, Craig talked about the five Gs. Well, three weeks ago, he said, he said it's, uh, if you're going to be a productive person, you must be gathered with God's people. You must be with God's people. You or you must, and then you must be grafted in. You got to be part of a body of Christ and say, I'm part of this. I'm, I'm praying with them and loving with them and standing shoulder to shoulder with them. And then you've got to be grouped. You've got to be in, in, in relational webs that will encourage you and build you and strengthen you and challenge you and weep when you want to weep and laugh when you want to laugh. And then you've got to realize that, that you're, you're gifted and you're called in order to serve. And so you understand the stewardship of life and that I'm not my own. I belong to the Lord, that I, I've been saved to represent him in my neighborhood, in the marketplace, in, to the ends of the earth. I, I've been, I do that. And then I go as a disciple and I serve and I minister the five Gs. I would add a six just as an umbrella. When you do that, you glorify God. You glorify God. Glorification. The glorification of God is the appreciative delight of all that he is for us in his Trinitarian glory that leads to worship, which leads to yieldness at the altar of who he is for me. I bear fruit. And then all of life. You live all of life to the glory of God. There's the, the most famous catechism question in the history of the Christian church is question number one in the larger catechism. It says, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And one of the verses they use for that is in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, where it says, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it out of the glory of God. They let God get the worship. So whether you're at work or at play or watching or riding or running or fishing or surfing, whatever you do, may God get the glory. May, may, may people understand that I worship at the altar of the one who is gloriously good and triune and eternal and kind and he's my God. Because when that happens people get influenced for the gospel of Jesus. When that happens flourishing comes into your life. When that happens the kingdom of God is advanced and that's what we want. That's what Peter wanted. That was the heartbeat of the apostle. God in your triune glory get the glory. Get the worship. And may it be with us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of the Apostle Peter. And as we close this book, we are thunderstruck with the brevity of it that's packed with incredible meaning. And Lord, as we walk in a fallen world and we'll be accosted by waves of 
spurious thinking and false teaching. Help us to say, I'm going to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Please change us, Holy Spirit, to in our own individual callings to reflect Jesus. Help us to be people who walk in the knowledge of the gospel. And, and, and Lord, may our baseline prayer be, I yield myself to you as I walk in appreciative delight of your triune goodness, as I walk in appreciative delight of the wonder of the cross. May it explode in worship in my life, which leads to a yieldedness at the altar of the God who is gloriously good. So Lord, use us to love people and to care for people. Uh, please give us hearts that are sensitive. And, uh, may your kingdom come in our lives. In this church, Lord, in this body of believers, in our families, in Jesus' name. Amen.